You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So today's reading is Acts 6, verses 8 to chapter 7, verse 8, and then we're jumping to 7, 54 to 60. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land even though at that time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him in this way. For hundreds of years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then, yeah, and then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. And then from verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. I'm going to just slide this back a little. Uh, there's an outline of my sermon in the usual spot on the online uh, welcome card if you'd like to follow along with that. Uh, it'd be great to have your Bible open. Uh, we're going to be whizzing through this whole passage, and so it'd be good for you to have the Bible open so you can see if what I'm actually saying is from the Bible, because that's the most important thing, isn't it? I've got nothing particularly useful to say, but God has lots of good things to say. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we do thank you for your word and we ask that this day, by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to see afresh the glory uh, of our Lord Jesus 
that the fact that we can see your glory in him is a truth that is worth us proclaiming to others, uh, worth us suffering for, even worth us dying for. Uh, it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I think we all like to put people and things in boxes. I'm not a particularly uh, neat wrapper-up of presents. I'd much rather kind of just chuck something in a bag and hand it to someone. But some people get very excited about putting their presents in boxes, don't they? And they kind of, that's where the whole Boxing Day thing comes from. Uh, and you kind of put the gift in and you wrap it up and you do those special kind of neat corners. You know, the people who get very excited about the neat corner. Uh, it's got the nice pointy edge and then they get the, the ribbon around it and, and a bow on top and a gift tag. Right, there's something very satisfying, isn't there? about putting things in boxes. They're so neat and contained and controlled. We also like to put people in boxes, though. That's less okay than things, isn't it? Putting people in boxes. Maybe people of a particular political persuasion, perhaps. Oh, of course that person thinks that. I saw them post something supporting Trump on Facebook. That person's a Daniel Andrews supporter. What would they know? We put people in boxes, don't we? I mean, boxes of particular parts of Melbourne in which people live. I've heard this before. You know, or would they know that? They live in the other side of the Yarra. We're a bit more enlightened over here, right? We put people of maybe particular Christian denominations in boxes at times. Oh, the, the Pentecostal church is always doing things like that. Oh, that person grew up a Catholic. Yeah, I'm not sure they really get it. It's pretty ugly, isn't it? But I think we do like to put people in boxes. Well, why do we do this? I think it's because it gives us a sense of control in life, to be able to sort people out, to put people in neat little categories, and to put people in a box and a nice little bow on top. It's sort of containing for our anxiety. And as ugly as it is with people, sometimes we have the gall to do this with God. And to put God in a box, as if we can control him and contain him and restrict and limit God. But what we see in today's passage is that it's all about Stephen. You heard Alex read it. Stephen, one of the leaders in the early church. We see that God is not in a box. In fact, Stephen's very clear. God is not found in any particular place. He's found in a particular person. The person of Jesus Christ. And when you find God in Jesus Christ, that's a truth that's worth proclaiming, that's worth suffering for, and that's even worth dying for. That's what we see in Stephen. So first, if you've got your Bible open, let's look at the characteristics of Stephen's ministry. This is in chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. There are really six characteristics of Stephen here. He was mentioned first back in chapter uh, verse 5. He was appointed as one of the servants, one of the deacons in the early church. Uh, and here, in these verses, Luke zooms in on Stephen, giving us six characteristics. The first is that he's full of God's grace. Full of God's grace. God's undeserved love and kindness and mercy. You see, Stephen's someone who didn't just know about God's grace in his head. He'd personally experienced God's grace. Right? He knew that Jesus had died the death that he deserved to die on the cross. So that he had received what he didn't deserve. He had received grace. So when he shared the good news about Jesus with people, he didn't just tell them about God's grace. He told them about God's grace in a gracious way. 
was gentle and humble and kind and, and compassionate towards them in their need. He was full of grace. And you might say, well, surely that meant he was a pushover. Or people would have walked all over him. Well, no. He's full of grace and power, we're told. Grace and power. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, you might remember Paul says to Timothy, God didn't give us a spirit that would make us timid, but a spirit to give us power. Now, some of us feel a bit nervous about that because we automatically think about brute power or manipulative power or coercive or abusive power. Right, that's not the power the spirit gives. Right, Paul says God's spirit gives us power, love and self-discipline. This is where you see the Spirit's power at work, where people are continuing to die to themselves and love Christ and others, where they've got the self-discipline to deny themselves and their own interests to serve the Lord Jesus and his interests. So that's what we see in Stephen. We see that sort of power from the Spirit at work in his life, power, love, and self-discipline, power to keep proclaiming the Lord Jesus even in the face of immense suffering and death. All right, Stephen's full of grace, he's full of power. Third, he's full of wisdom, we're told. Full of wisdom. So wise that, that the people just can't stand up to his arguments. A wisdom there, it's not particularly about being intelligent or clever. I don't know what Stephen would have got on his ATAR score. Maybe he was pretty cluey. Uh, but wisdom is about living uh, in God's world in a way that's in line with God's ways. That's wisdom, living in God's world in a way that's in line with God's ways. The emphasis is on God because Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's no way of living a wise life in God's world if you don't approach God with fear and awe and reverence and respect for who he is as the ruler over all creation. And that's what we see in Stephen's life. He's someone who lives his life with awe and reverence for God. And so his wisdom is characterised, uh, his wisdom, his life is characterised, his ministry is characterised by wisdom and understanding and insight. A fourth, uh, Stephen, uh, you see there that uh, in verse 8, he performed great signs and wonders amongst the people. He performed miracles. Why did he perform these miracles? Well, of course, it's a good thing to do, to, to heal people. That's a sign of God's kingdom breaking into the world. But in particular, he performed these miracles to authenticate the words that he was about to speak. It was a sign of God giving his divine endorsement of Stephen's words, saying, this guy's words come from me. Whether that's Stephen. A fifth, you see in verse 9 and verses 11 to 14 that Stephen's willing to suffer like Christ. In verse 9, opposition starts to come up against Stephen. People are arguing against him. And in verses 11 to 14, you'll see that he's suffering like Jesus. In verse 11, he's unjustly accused. In verses 12 and 14, he's forcibly seized, just like Jesus was. And in verse 14, he's falsely testified against as one who is united with Jesus by faith, he's connected with Jesus deeply, what happened to Jesus is now happening to Stephen. He's sharing in the, in the sufferings of Jesus. Which is why in verse 15, he's shining with the glory of Jesus. 
As he shares in Jesus' weakness and power, he shines. Uh, weakness and suffering, he shines with Jesus' power and glory. I look there in verse 15. All who were sitting in, uh, uh, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, that, that's the council of Jewish elders, uh, looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Whether people agreed with Stephen or not, and lots of people here didn't agree with Stephen, what was clear was that he was a man who had been in God's presence. He was a man who, who was shining with the glory of Jesus, a heavenly glory. They best, the best they could do was say it was like an angel. I wonder if someone was to describe the characteristics of your life, your ministry, your service, uh, what words would they use? Would they say that you're gracious and kind or bold and confident and assured or wise and insightful? Would they say that, that when you speak to them, you, you share with them the very words of God, that you're willing to suffer like Jesus, that, that you shine with the glory of Jesus, that it's clear to people that, that, I don't know what it is about that person, but they have been with Jesus. There's something that shines differently about them. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that so that we all kind of beat ourselves up and say, oh, gee, I'm not very much like Stephen, right? That that would produce very much good fruit in our lives, would it? Apart from, yeah, just making us feel guilty. Or on the other hand, I'm not saying it doesn't matter if you're like Stephen or not. Because Luke's actually put Stephen here as a wonderful example of what it looks like to be a witness for Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that's something we're all called to do. Because bearing witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth is something that's still continuing. So what do we do with this? Well, I think we humbly admit that in and of ourselves, we can't be like Stephen. We just mess it up all over the place. But with God's help, transformed by the gospel, maybe over time we can be like Stephen. So we ask for God's help. Because as we're transformed by the gospel of God's grace, that we'll gradually be more gracious to other people, for example. It says that we're transformed by the power of the gospel, assured in our Heavenly Father's love for us, that we'll be more confident and bold and assured in our lives and in our service. It's as we're transformed by God's wisdom seen in the gospel, the good news of the cross of Christ, which is the wisdom of God, even though it's foolishness to those who aren't in Christ. It's as we're transformed by, like, by that, that we'll have unique spiritual wisdom and insight in our lives. Right? That's the characteristics of Stephen. And then in verses 12 and 14 in particular, I just want to zoom in on the charges that are brought against Stephen. There are essentially two charges. Uh, the first is because of Jesus, we don't need the temple anymore. And the second is because of Jesus, we don't need the law anymore. So if you read there, the, uh, the people say, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. Right? That's the temple in Jerusalem. And against the law, they say, the law that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. What's their evidence? Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So the first charge, because of Jesus, we don't need the temple anymore. 
And now on one level, that's completely false, isn't it? Jesus never said that he was physically going to tear the temple down brick by brick. But on the other hand, it's kind of true, isn't it? Because the coming of Jesus does mean that the temple in Jerusalem isn't needed. It's redundant. Why? Because, well, Jesus is the ultimate temple. It's in Jesus that we see and experience God's glorious presence. Why do we need a special holy place in Jerusalem? We've got Jesus. Right? Jesus is the ultimate priest. It's Jesus who represents us to God. And it's um, Jesus who um, sorry, it's Jesus who represents us to God and represents God to us. He's the ultimate priest. He can do that not just today, but forever, mediating our relationship with God. Uh, and he can do that because he's the ultimate sacrifice. He offered the once for all sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so there is a sense in which these charges against Stephen are true. Because of Jesus, we don't need the temple anymore. And because of Jesus, we don't need the law anymore. That's the second charge, which on, again, well, it's sort of completely false, isn't it? In Matthew 5, what did Jesus say about the law? I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus isn't getting rid of the law. On the other hand, as the one who came to perfectly fulfill the law, there is a sense in which we don't need the law, uh, in that we don't need the law, we don't need to obey the law of Moses to be saved. Well, we don't need to, I don't need to go home and never eat bacon again to be saved, right? Don't have to eat kosher food, don't have to kind of fastidiously observe the Sabbath to be saved or to get Felix and Charlie circumcised to make sure they're saved, right? We don't have to obey the law of Moses to be saved because Jesus obeyed the law of Moses perfectly in our place and we put our faith in him, not in our obedience to the law of Moses, well, how does Stephen respond to these charges in chapter 7? I Take a look in chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest says to Stephen, are these charges true? And if you read through the chapter, it seems like Stephen's not answering the question. He's certainly not directly saying yes or no. But he is. If you read it closely, I want to show you how he's building a case for why God, the God of Israel, has never been limited to a particular place, whether that be the land or the temple or the tabernacle. In fact, the God of Israel is now found in a particular person, in Jesus Christ. That's where we see the glory of the God of Israel. So first, he builds that case in verses 2 to 8 by reminding these Jewish leaders, hey, do you remember how God appeared to Abraham and the patriarchs outside of Israel? Before there was a temple or a tabernacle. That's, that's verses 2 to 8. If you look at verses 2 and 3, uh, he says, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, of all places. This is an ungodly, idol-worshipping place. And yet the God of Israel was there with Abraham. In fact, verses 4 and 5, Abraham never even possessed the land of Israel, even though God promised that his descendants would. So what's the deal with the land? Verses six and Stephen, uh, seven. Stephen reminds these Jewish leaders uh, that God told um, that God told the Jews that, that uh, sorry that God told Abraham that his descendants would only uh, kind of inherit the land after they'd spent four hundred years in slavery in Egypt. But right? after that, 
God would bring them back to the land. And look at verse 8. Right, God was with all the patriarchs. That's the word for the fathers of the Jewish faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, they were the fathers of God's covenant people. That's the people that the God had bound himself to by making specific promises to them. And that's what this whole thing of circumcision's about, right? As an outward physical sign of his promises to his people, God gave them the sign of circumcision. What's the sign about? It's saying, I am your God and you are my people. No matter where you are, I am with you. It's a physical reminder of that. What's the point? The point is that God is not limited to a particular place. So what's the big deal if Stephen's saying some things against the temple? God's never been limited to the temple anyway. That's his point. And in verses 9 to 19, he says God was with Joseph in Egypt. If you look at verse 9, you see there that God, excuse me, you'll see there that the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, were jealous of Joseph, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. But... God was with him. That's Stephen's point. Even down in Egypt, God was with Joseph. We see that God was with him because God rescued Joseph from all his troubles. God made the Pharaoh of Egypt favourable to Joseph so that he could kind of be elevated to be the ruler of Egypt. And then in summary, verses 11 to 16, why did God elevate Joseph? So that he could save his people. You can read the story in Genesis 37 to 50. God was with his people, saving them from famine in the land of Israel by providing for them in the land of Egypt. God is not in a box, Stephen said. God is a living and active God who's on the move. He was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was with Joseph down in Egypt. He's with his people down in Egypt. Look in verses 17 to 19. God was even with his people when a new pharaoh came along who didn't know anything about Joseph. Right? It's not something special about Joseph. It's something special about God. God can be with his people wherever they are, Stephen say. Right? And we know God was with his people, Stephen says, because even though this new pharaoh enslaved them and mistreated them and instituted a kind of systematic genocide of their newborn sons, Right, horrific stuff. Even in the midst of all of that, they increased in number and God raised up Moses to rescue them. God's not in a box. God can't be contained or restricted to Israel or the temple or the tabernacle. He's on the move with his people wherever they are. He's with Joseph in Egypt and verses 20 to 43, he's with Moses and the Israelites both in Egypt and through the wilderness. Right, verse, take a look in verse 20. God was with Moses when he was born, Stephen says. First, because, well, he was able to be cared for by his parents for three months, not given up straight away. And second, verses 21 and 22, he was rescued somewhat miraculously from the River Nile so that he could grow up in the house of Pharaoh. And so Moses enjoyed all the benefits of being cared for and educated in the very palace of God's so-called enemy. Right? God was with Moses 
in Egypt. He was even with Moses, verses 23 to 29, uh, when Moses got things horribly wrong. You can read that section. God, uh, Moses knew that the God had chosen him to liberate his people from Egypt. Uh, but rather than waiting to do things in God's time and in God's ways, Moses took matters into his own hands. Right? He thought, I'm going to free my people by murdering this Egyptian who's oppressing one of the Israelites. But even then, God was with Moses, you see. God enabled him to escape Pharaoh's judgment and flee to Midian. And take a look in verses 30 to 34. I think these are the kind of heart of the passage uh, and, and in many ways the, the high point. In verses 34 and 44, 30 to 34, the glorious presence of God appears to Moses. Where does it appear? It appears to Mo- he appears to Moses not in the temple in Jerusalem, but in a burning bush. Or not in the land of Israel, uh, but somewhere near Mount Sinai in Midian. And, and notice what, uh, what God says to, to Moses, he, uh, quoted in verse 33, the place where you are standing is holy ground. It's a holy place. Remember, Stephen was accused of speaking against this holy place. What's he saying? He's saying, you want to talk about holy places? Well, God created his own holy place right there near Mount Sinai. God's not in a box. God can appear to whoever he wants, wherever he wants. And he can make that very spot a holy of holies, just like in the temple. So God sends Moses back to Egypt, verses 35 and 36. He's going to rescue the Israelites from Egypt, bring them into the promised land. And even while they're in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, verses 37 and 38, you see that God was with Moses there. Moses would meet with God. God would give him living words to speak to the people of Israel. Moses acted as God's prophet, the the mouthpiece of God to God's people. But things didn't go well. Look in verse 37. Oh, sorry, first uh, in verse 37. We've got to see that that quote about a prophet like Moses coming. Moses knew that that even though he was a great prophet, he wasn't the ultimate prophet. There was a prophet that was like him, but greater than him, that would one day come. And the subtext here, of course, is, well, you guys got it wrong, right? God has sent that prophet in Jesus But you rejected him. And frankly, you've got a track record of doing that. If you look at verses 39 to 40, they rejected Moses too, the Israelites. They refused to listen to Moses. They wished that they could just go back to Egypt. And so they found themselves going into idolatry, verses 41 to 43. Instead of worshipping the glorious creator God who made them in his image... They worshipped created things that they had made in their own image. The sun and the moon and the stars, little wooden carved or a golden calf at Mount Sinai, you know. And we're much more sophisticated. We worship money that we've made and cars that we've made and whatever else. We don't have little carvings anymore. But it's the same idea, isn't it? And so God gave them over, Stephen says. He says, fine, have it your way. And in the end, he quotes from Amos chapter 5, verses 25 and 27, saying, in the end, Israel's repeated turning away from him to worship other things meant that Israel was kicked out of the land 
into Babylon. But the big point of verses 20 to 43 is that God was with Moses and the Israelites, both in Egypt and in the wilderness. No issue with God being with his people. And so in verses 44 to 50, Stephen tackles the, the kind of the issue of the tabernacle and the temple head on. And he says essentially that, yes, God lived in the tabernacle and the temple, but God was never limited to those places. If you look in verse 44, he picks up the tabernacle, saying, well, while Israel was in the wilderness, yes, God dwelled in a tabernacle, a kind of portable tent. We heard a lot about this last year, in which God lived with his people as they travelled through the wilderness. Uh, but in verses 45 to 47, after Joshua brought the people of Israel into the promised land, uh, they had a more settled and kind of permanent life. Uh, and so initially David, David wanted to build a permanent dwelling place for God in the temple. But ultimately it was David's son who built the temple. Uh, and notice in verse 47, uh, he built a house for God. Right, Stephen concedes this. Right, that the, the, the God did have a particular place, a particular house. It, it seems like he's saying, you guys are right. You actually can put God in a box, in a particular house. But in verse 48, Stephen delivers his knockout punch. You see there, he says, However, but the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. It's never been the case that you could limit God to a particular box, a particular house. Well, in one sense, the, the temple in Jerusalem was God's house. Uh, in another sense, he was never limited to that place. Look in verses 49 and 50. Stephen quotes Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You see what Stephen's saying in quoting from Isaiah? He's saying, you want to know where God's house is? Ultimately, it's everything. It's all of creation. Heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. Why? Because he made everything. He's never been restricted to a particular place, even though he humbly and freely chose to dwell in the temple, to be with his people. So why haven't the leaders of Israel seen any of this? It seems so obvious to Stephen as he reads through the history of God's people in the Old Testament. And that's what, verses 51 to 53, Stephen says it's because of where they're at spiritually. He's pretty scathing, isn't he? Stiff-necked people. They're proud and stubborn and rebellious. They've got uncircumcised hearts and ears, which is just a picture of saying, Either their ears are deaf to God's word and their hearts are hard to God's word. And that's because they're resisting three things. Right? First, verse 52, they're resisting the Holy Spirit. Either the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, uh, whose role is to soften people's hearts to God's word, to open people's ears to God's word. Uh, but they're stubbornly resisting the Holy Spirit. And that's particularly seen second in their rejection of all of God's prophets. The messengers that God has sent who, sent, who are, were especially empowered by God's Spirit to bring God's words, 
But these guys, just as they did with Moses earlier in this chapter, they've got this repeated history of rejecting all of God's prophets, rejecting God's words. And third, ultimately, they've rejected the righteous one, the prophet like Moses, the prophet greater than Moses. They have rejected Jesus, betraying him and killing him on the cross. That's why they've missed what God was always on about with the temple. And it also means, verse 53, they've completely missed the point of the law as well. Right, Stephen says, you guys, yes, you've got the privilege of receiving the law of Moses. But in rejecting and killing Jesus, the one to whom the law pointed, you haven't even obeyed the law. So you can imagine the Jewish leaders, they're not very happy with Stephen. And so in verses 54 to 60, we've got the stoning of Stephen. I'll take a look in verse 54, that the Sanhedrin is full of rage. I don't know if you've ever had someone gnash their teeth at you. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that looks like. But um, anyway, it's not an uncommon biblical expression, is it? The, the, the Sanhedrin's full of rage, and so they're fixated on killing Stephen. They're consumed by that. But Stephen's full of something different, isn't he? He's full of the Holy Spirit. And as one who's full of the Spirit, Stephen is fixated on Jesus. And Jesus said that would happen, right? In John 16, verse 13, he said, the Spirit would glorify him. The Spirit would magnify him in the vision of his people. That's what's happening for Stephen right here. By the power of, uh, full of the Spirit, he sees Jesus. Verse 55, he sees heaven kind of torn open in front of him. He gets a glimpse of the glorious presence of God and standing at the right hand of God in the kind of ultimate position of power and authority is Jesus in all his glory. Uh, so in verse 56, he, probably annoyingly for the Sanhedrin, he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So just, you know, like in the context, they're having a conversation about where God's glory can be found, where God's presence can be found. And Stephen's saying, oh, I, I, I don't, I'm not too concerned about God's presence being found in the particular place of the temple because I've found the glorious presence of God in a particular person, in Jesus. I can see it right now. I can see him right now standing at the right hand of God. And this is the ultimate heresy for the Sanhedrin, suggesting that Someone that Jesus could embody the glorious presence of God. So they uh, condemn Stephen to death. And, and Luke presents Stephen here as dying just like Jesus. Right, just as the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus to death in Luke's gospel. You can read that at the end of Luke 22. So also here, the Sanhedrin condemns Stephen to death. Uh, in Luke 23 verse 46, uh, Jesus commits himself to his father. Saying, Father, receive my spirit. Here, Stephen commits himself to the Lord Jesus. Saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus prays for those who are killing him. 
Father, forgive these people for they don't know what they're doing. And here Stephen also prays for those who are killing him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And just as in Luke 23, uh, Jesus simply breathes his last. We sang about it earlier. Not heaps of graphic details about his death. So also here, we're just told Stephen falls asleep. It must have been excruciating to be stoned to death. Stephen is being presented as dying just like Jesus. He's a witness for Jesus. Remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus commanded his disciples to bear witness to him, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And I've already said that that word witness really just means pointing people to Jesus, testifying about Jesus. Uh, But that word witness in the Greek language is also where we get our English word martyr. Like someone who's willing to suffer and die for the sake of a cause. In this case, for the sake of Christ. Uh, And Stephen understands that, doesn't he? He understands that sometimes being a faithful witness for Jesus means being willing to suffer and die for Jesus. Being a martyr for Jesus. So at the end of Acts chapter 7, it really does seem like the Jewish leaders are the ones in control. They're successfully stamping out the church. But what we're going to see next week in the following chapters of Acts, what we see throughout church history, uh, is that when Christians are willing to give their lives for the sake of Christ, uh, what uh, what Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said is true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more Christians are willing to suffer and die for the sake of Christ, the more the church seems to grow and multiply and spread. You see that around the world today, where the efforts are most vicious and brutal to stamp out the church, the church is growing most rapidly. This is what happens. This is what happens in Acts. Not because there's something particularly powerful about the deaths of Christians. It's not magic. It's because there's something particularly powerful about the one that they're dying for. They're dying for Jesus. You get a glimpse of his power looking in verse 58. The witnesses who stoned Stephen to death laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. As you see the contrast here, right? Saul, Saul stands on earth approving of Stephen's death. We know from chapter 8 verse 1. Because he thinks in the stoning of Stephen, he is successfully eliminating Christ's church. But Saul doesn't know yet. His eyes haven't been opened to see the glory of Christ who also stands. He stands in heaven at the right hand of God in the ultimate place of authority and he also approves of Stephen's death. Not not in the narrow sense but in the broad sense he approves of Stephen's death because he knows that Stephen's death is going to lead to the explosive growth of his church. That's his plan for Stephen. To die for his sake that his church might grow. And, of course, much of that growth is going to come through this young man named Saul. So we all like to put people and things in boxes. And sometimes we even try to do that with God. I think Stephen's ministry shows us that we just can't put God in a box. We can't limit him or contain him or restrict him. Our God is a living and active God. 
a God who's not found in any particular geographical place, but in the particular person of Jesus. That's where we can see God's glory, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when your eyes are open to see God's glory in Jesus, you'll discover that that's a truth that's worth proclaiming, worth suffering for, and even dying for. That's what we see in Stephen. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We do pray that your spirit would open our eyes uh, to see your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus for the first time or afresh this day. And as we see your glory in the person of our Lord Jesus, I pray that we'd be willing to proclaim him, uh, to suffer for him, and even be willing to die for his sake. In his name we pray. Amen.